We're going to finish the first chapter of John tonight. And if you've been with us for uh, some of the previous messages, that may seem like an impossible task. But uh, I promise you we'll do it. Jesus uh, is identified in John's gospel differently than he is in any of the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, John's whole theme is Jesus, the Son of God. John writes the gospel in, in uh, narrative form, uh, much more so than any of the other writers, and, and his is the least scholarly of the, of the four gospels. Now, when I, when I say that, what I mean by that is it's just like you're sitting down across the table and he's telling you a story. That's not the case with the other three gospel accounts. Uh, it's almost as if uh, John's purpose is to say, let me tell you about my friend Jesus. He was the Son of God. However, John never identifies himself in his gospel. So it's, it's not even let me tell you about my friend Jesus. It's let me tell you about Jesus. He leaves himself out, although he alludes to himself. He never identifies himself in his own gospel, um, by name at least. And so he's, he's saying, let me tell you about Jesus. He was the son of God. The other three gospel accounts are a little bit different in that they point out different aspects of Jesus as far as him being the servant of God or the perfect man or the king of the, the Jews. And uh, we've covered down through verse, nine, uh, verse 18 where John is um, making his introduction and his summary about Jesus. Now he's going to start going into detail, beginning in verse, um, beginning in verse 19. The first 18 verses of the, the introduction and the summary. Verse 19 starts some detail. Now, the detail that he starts is about John the Baptist. He said, this is the record of John. It's a reference back up to verse 15 where it said, John bare witness of him and cried saying, this is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me for he was before me. So now he's going to go into detail about what John did and what John said. But I'm going to turn back and start reading from Luke chapter 3 because it's important for us to, to recognize the difference in the way John presents things and the other gospel accounts. So I'm going to start in Luke chapter 3. All of the gospel uh, writers mention John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 3 gives us some uh, uh, pertinent information about John the Baptist. You'll see what I mean. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 2. It tells about uh, the timing, who was uh, governor of Judea, Pilate was governor of Judea, Annas was and Caiaphas were the high priests, and so forth. It says, during that time, it says, verse 2, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now keep that in mind, that's going to be significant. And he came about, came into all the country about Jordan, that means outside of Jordan, what we would know of as, uh, today as the West Bank. He came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is Isaiah chapter 40. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he, John, said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. I want you to notice multitude. Big crowds followed John. He said to them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now Matthew says that he said this to the Pharisees that came out to be baptized of him. But you wouldn't expect that to be the invitation call, would you? The people that come to the multitude, the multitudes that come out into the wilderness. Now folks, the wilderness was not a place that there were roads to go. People, it's, it's a hard place. It's a hard way to get out there. Some people are making real sacrifices to get out to where John is. John's not in the temple. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about that as we go. It was difficult for John, or it was difficult for the people to get to where John was. John was sent by God into the wilderness, not into Judea, not into Jerusalem, not to where the Jews were. He was sent into what we would know of as the land of the Gentiles. It's Arab country, not Jewish territory, Arab country. And so he says, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now what he's saying there, what he's referencing, is an Old Testament uh, prophecy in Isaiah again 
where it says the, the, uh, the axe is laid to the root of the tree, that has a dual meaning. It means Jesus laid the axe to the root of sin. You ever heard people talk about generational curses? Oh, well, the pastor might pray for me that, that this generational curse will be broken over me. Folks, if Jesus laid an axe to the root of the tree, the tree meaning the work of the devil, there is no generational curse. That's just giving the devil t- the credibility to do things to you that he did to your father or mother or grandfather or grandmother or whatever down the line. Yeah, but, but the doctor says that, there, that, that cancer runs in my family. Well, Jesus puts a, an axe, lays an axe to the root of that cancerous tree. Don't ever give the devil any place. Now, don't misunderstand me at all because I have the same DNA as my father, my natural father does, did. I have the same temptations that he had. I have the same propensity, the same natural tendencies that he had. But that's what renewing the mind's all about. You renew the mind so that you overcome your natural tendencies. Don't make excuses for what the devil did in your, pam- your family past and think, okay, well, that's what he's going to do with me. Not unless you let him. But it has a second meaning also. And that has to do with Israel. Israel, where God, Israel was, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel was God's chosen people. But he laid an axe to the root of that tree as well because they rejected him and he went to the Gentiles. That's what John is saying. Now, when he speaks these things, he's telling them, just coming to me to be baptized in water is not enough. It's not enough to just say, okay, we believe in your preaching. We believe in the one that you're talking about to come. That's We want to be in on this too. People come to church and people get involved in the things of God for a lot of different reasons. And not all of them are the right motives. So John is saying, okay, it might be interesting, it might be, it might make a good show that you're coming to be baptized, but live your lives right. Don't just expect being dunked in water to do the job. And the people said, asked him saying, verse 10, what shall we do then? He answered and said unto them, he that has two coats, let him impart to one that has none. And he that has meat, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans to be baptized. What he's saying is look out for other people. Don't just be selfish. Don't live your lives in a selfish manner. Look out for other people. Be willing to give. Then came also the publicans. These are the tax collectors to be baptized. And they said unto him, Master, what shall we do? Now the tax collectors were the most hated of all men. May still be the case today. I don't know. But he answered and said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers, these are Romans, these are not Jews. And the, the soldiers answered him, uh, likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. In other words, quit taking advantage of people. Quit abusing people. Quit using your position as, as uh, uh, agents of the, uh, the nation of Rome. To hurt and harm others that are under your authority. Verse 15. Notice this, this verse. Verse 15. And as the people were in expectation, that means they were in suspense. And all men mused or debated in their hearts of John, about John, in other words, whether he were the Christ or not. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose, fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and he will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. Now, folks, um, I don't know if that qualifies as good news or not. Because he's basically telling people, now the one that's coming after me, I'm baptizing with water, but the one that's coming after me, he is going to dump fire right in your lap. He's preaching a curse upon the nation of Israel. Now, Matthew and Mark both tell us some more, uh, give us some uh, details about John that uh, even Luke doesn't tell about his appearance. It says that he had camel hair, uh, camel skin for raiment, and he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, this guy is a wild man. And people don't know who he is. The people don't know who he is, but they hear him preaching about the one to come. Now, turn back with me over to John chapter 1. Both Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the same type of things about John the Baptist. His ministry was hard. He was telling people, get right with God or else. And then John, 
who was a disciple of John the Baptist, tells us what John's record of Jesus was. Verse 19, and this is the record of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Now, none of the other gospel writers tell us about this. But John was right in there with John the Baptist. You'll see very clearly how close he was to John the Baptist in just a few verses. And it tells us about the priests and the Levites. Now, everything else the other gospel writers tell us is about John the Baptist just reigning all over the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. He's right in their face. He's calling them hypocrites. He's calling them generation of vipers. But John, the gospel of John, tells us from an eyewitness account, here's how the priests and the Levites dealt with John the Baptist. Now, who are the priests and the Levites? They're the ones that are offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. Folks, the priests and the Levites' lives revolved around sacrifices. Their lives revolved around shedding blood. Their lives revolved around doing that which makes uh, atonement for sin. Everything about the priests and the Levites, every day of their life, every action of their day is centered around a sacrifice because you're not worthy to stand before God, the righteous judge of the earth. Right? John tells us about these guys. He said, and this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? Now, read this in the way that it's intended. I read it casually. Who art thou? Don't read it as, John, who are you? Read it as, who are you? Because that's the priests and the Levites' mission. They're sent from the religious leaders from Jerusalem on a, on a mission to question John, who are you? Now, who is he? Well, we saw that uh, John tells us that he was sent from God. Everybody believed that he was somebody special. Because they're even questioning, is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Folks, you got to be somebody doing something significant for people to even wonder that about you. And it tells us that the multitudes are going out to, from, from all the cities roundabout to get to where he is in the wilderness. I mean, people are having to pack lunches, several days worth of lunch, depending on where they're coming from. This is not an easy thing. They're not taking the train or the bus over to where he's ministering. They've got to go with great effort out to where he is. And he's having such an impact on so many people that multitudes, I don't know how big a multitude is, but it's a lot, especially when it's plural. There are tons and tons of people that are out there, and you can see they come from every walk of life. Even the Roman soldiers are coming to John saying, what should we do? He's striking a chord. He's saying, judgment is coming through the one that's after me. Now, he, John, uh, the author of the gospel, Apostle John, he's just told us that Jesus is full of grace and truth. John the Baptist, not so much. He's about get right, make things right. And so now the priests and the Levites, seeing the crowds, and remember, that's what they got envious about Jesus. That's why they finally decided we need to kill this guy because if we don't, everybody's going to believe on him. They've got the same high priest, same people in charge. This has to be their same attitude as well, you would imagine or expect. And so they send word to the priests and Levites to John the Baptist saying, who are you? The whole purpose is to try to intimidate John through the religious system set up in Jerusalem. I mean, after all, the high priest is the one that speaks for, to God on behalf of the people. He's supposed to be the one that speaks to the people on behalf of God. Now, all of a sudden, this prophet comes from nowhere out in the wilderness, out in the sticks. He's not even trying to get to the cities. He stays out there and has bigger crowds than they'll ever imagine. Who are you, is their question. Notice in verse 20, he says, and he confessed and denied not. That's a very interesting way to say, convey a, 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 a truth here, isn't it? And he confessed and denied not. It shows the fact that they were intending to intimidate him. They went out to question him, to question his credentials, to question everything about what he's doing. Who are you? John wasn't intimidated. And he confessed and denied not. That phrase denied not means he didn't allow himself to be intimidated. But he said, he confessed, I am not the Christ. People are wondering, it's gotten back to Jerusalem, so he just cuts it off right off the path, right off the bat. He says, I'm not the Christ. And then they asked him, verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now, why Elijah? There's a lot of information about Elijah um, 
the Old Testament, the last two verses, let me read these. The last two verses in uh, the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, I believe it is, verses 5 and 6, speaks of uh, Elijah coming back, and it's very often misinterpreted. It was certainly misinterpreted by the Jews, religious leaders of his day, that day. Uh, Malachi chapter 4, it's, uh, it's verses 5 and 6, right. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, with that in mind, let me read to you from Matthew chapter 17. Here's uh, the account of the transfiguration. And it says, beginning in verse uh, 9, and it says, And they were come down from the mountain. This is the, the transfiguration experience. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Pretty plain as to what's going to happen, right? And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? So get the, get the picture of what's taking place in this point in time. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are saying, those that have uh, first-hand knowledge and, and responsibility where the Old Testament prophecies are concerned, they say, according to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that Elijah has to come first. Now Jesus is saying, don't tell anybody about the transfiguration, what you just saw, what you just witnessed, until I'm risen again from the dead. They're saying, wait a minute, we've been told that Elijah has to come first. So if this is about you being raised from the dead, where's Elijah? And then Jesus explains further and says in verse 11, he says, Elijah truly shall come first come and restore all things. Now, when is Jesus talking about? Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 is not talking about Elijah coming before Jesus comes to the earth. It's talking about before Jesus comes back in great power and glory. In other words, when he comes back in what's known in church circles as the second advent, when he comes back to exact judgment on the earth. This is one scripture that gives us a... a, a, at least an intimation that one of the two witnesses might be Elijah. We've been talking about some of the end time things. One of the two witnesses might be Elijah because Elijah is going to be here in return before Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation period and exacts judgment on the earth and sets up his millennial reign for a thousand years here on the earth. But that's not what the scribes are teaching. The scribes are teaching in the synagogues that Elijah has to come before the Messiah ever shows up. And so Jesus said, Elijah truly shall come first. And restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed or wanted to do. Likewise also shall the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke unto them of John the Baptist. So what this is saying, at this point in time, just uh, three chapters before in Matthew chapter 14, they've killed John the Baptist. That's what he means when he says Elijah has already come meaning John the Baptist is ministered in the spirit of Elijah. Now, what was the spirit of Elijah? The spirit of Elijah was very similar, or actually Elijah's ministry, was very similar to John the Baptist in that both the kings hated the guy. Ahab was king when Elijah was here on the earth prophesying on behalf of Israel. Herod is the king in John the Baptist's day. And John the Baptist is telling everybody that he's done the wrong thing and taking his brother's wife. And Herod, that's the whole reason why he gets killed. Because the wife wants to shut John the Baptist up. She likes being the queen. So you remember the story about how the daughter danced before Herod and did this lewd sexual type thing. And he said, oh, wow, you are so, so pretty and so sexy and all this other kind of stuff. What do you want? And his mother, her mother had already arranged for her to ask for the head of John the Baptist. So he kills him. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about as the forerunner. Elijah was the forerunner of the, of the Messiah in one sense, just as John the Baptist was the forerunner. You remember Jesus said of John the Baptist, he said, there has not been a greater prophet than John the Baptist on the earth. Now, that's a that's a very strange comment in one context or in one sense because John the Baptist didn't do any miracles. Elijah did tons of miracles. Moses did tons of miracles. How could John the Baptist be a greater prophet than any of the other guys where we have many more accounts of miracles and, and signs and wonders and things like that? John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he was the last one, the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one that got to say, there he is. And that's what made him the greatest. It wasn't about, it hasn't been from the beginning about signs and wonders. It's about pointing to Jesus. So that's what made John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets. 
Jesus concluded and finished that saying by saying John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets. There's never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Yet the person that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. So not only is it great to be able to point to Jesus and say, there he is, it's greater to say, he's in me. So back to John chapter 1. They asked him, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Now he's ministering in the spirit of Elijah, but he's saying, I'm not him. And then they answered, art thou that prophet? Now this is a reference to what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Let me read this to you real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 18 is when Moses says something about it. And then uh, uh, chapter 18, verse 15, Moses makes a statement and then he refers back to something that God has already said. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Just like me, in other words. Now, that's the prophet that they're asking John the Baptist about. Are you this prophet that Moses spoke of? And he said, unto him shall you hearken. Verse 18, it says... Uh, well, verse 17, and the Lord said unto me, here's Moses saying what God said to him. They have well spoken that, that which they have spoken. I will raise up them a prophet, raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Now, what's it saying? The Old Testament prophecy was that there would be another prophet just like Moses. Now, what was significant about Moses? Moses was the lawgiver. He was the one that delivered the word of God that was written in stone. Jesus is the word made flesh. God said, I will put my words in his mouth and everybody will listen to him. In other words, you'll be required to hear the word that he speaks. Whether you accept it or not, it's up to you. But if not, then a payment will be required of you. Judgment will be required of you if we refuse. That's why salvation is all about Jesus and not about anything else. So that's their question. Are you Elijah? Who are you, John? Who gave you the right to do all these things? What makes you such hot stuff? He said, well, I'm not the Christ. Well, what about Elijah? Are you him? No. What about that prophet that Moses spoke of? Are you him? No. Then they conclude and say, then they said unto him, verse 22, who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us, what sayest thou of thyself? Who do you claim to be? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Now, folks, I want you to notice first and foremost the contrast between John and Jesus. John said he's the voice. The apostle John says Jesus was the word made flesh. What is a voice in comparison to the word? Well, you can stifle the voice, but you can't do away with the word. A voice is the expression of the word of God. And that's what he's saying. He doesn't even say, I am the voice. Now, what could John have said? Think about who this guy is. What could John the Baptist have answered about himself? He could have said, well, I'm the guy that was prophesied in Isaiah 40. Not too many people can say they've been prophesied about in the Bible. John the Baptist could. He didn't answer that way. He didn't say, I'm the one that had a miracle birth. Because you remember the story. Matthew tells us a story about how his mother was barren and the angel came in. She got pregnant. His father wouldn't believe what was going on, so the angel shut his mouth for nine months. You remember that story. There's a supernatural birth. What else could he have said about himself? Well, he could have said what John testified of him, that he was sent of God. But he didn't even say that. There's a lot of things that he could have said about himself, but he answered very simply as to the work that God had given him to do. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, there's that wilderness again. Why is it so important for John to be in the wilderness? Keep that in mind. We'll get there. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him why baptize thou why baptizest thou then in other words here's our final question okay now you've claimed that you're a voice in the wilderness well that could be anybody that doesn't make you special what gives you the right to baptize now folks this is the thing that the pharisees always did the reason it says that they were pharisees is because the pharisees came to jesus first and tried to make him one of them they questioned jesus in much the same way who gave you this right John, you're not educated. You didn't go to the rabbi schools. You're not born of the right tribe. Who are you 
to be baptizing people and telling them to repent. Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? And John answered them, saying, now look at their question. Their question is, why are you baptizing? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to baptize? John answers and says, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. Now, folks, that's the whole problem right there. The religious leaders wouldn't know Jesus if he walked down the street with a red hat on. The religious leaders aren't even interested in the things of God. The religious leaders are only interested in who's drawing away our people. That's the only reason they're out there. If John didn't have the multitudes that were coming to him in the wilderness, they wouldn't care. There's lots of other people in the wilderness. They may not be preaching the word, but nobody's following them. So the Jews and the religious religious leaders aren't interested in them. That's their only concern. They're out there for envy. They're out there because of the impact it could have on them and their position. And John simply answers and says, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you know not. Notice how John keeps deflecting it away from him and back to Jesus. Whom you know not. He it is who's coming after me is prefer who coming after me is preferred or honored before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. That's the second time John, the Apostle John, gives record of this in the first chapter. He said it in verse 15, 16, somewhere around there. Now he's saying it again. He's going to say it again in just another couple of verses. He keeps saying, there's one coming after me and he's preferred before me. Now, uh, we talked about this before, I think, but the important thing to realize is John the Baptist is the most famous preacher out there. And he's saying there's one coming after me, following me time-wise, but he's preferred before me in great, great measure. There's a more important one coming. Verse 28, these things were done in uh, Bethabara, beyond Jordan. Here's that phrase again, beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. John tells us something that that the other gospel accounts don't tell us, and that is where in the wilderness uh, John the Baptist was operating. Now, you know what's significant about this place? This place, Bethabara, well, you can read it. You try to pronounce it. I can't do it. This place is identified in Judges chapter 7, verse 24, as the place where Joshua and the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River. This is a place that during the time of the Judges, they went back and built a memorial on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, what was significant about that is because they had gotten away from God so much, they were trying to find the old important places and set up monuments, set up important sites, make them holy sites. This place where they crossed over from the wilderness into the promised land was a place that signified or symbolized death. Now, why isn't John the Baptist preaching in Jerusalem in the middle of the temple? Because the religious leaders have rejected him. There aren't people in the temple that are going to be interested in that. But he goes out into the wilderness, which which suggests that the Messiah is coming, or at least the good news of the Messiah that's coming after John is not just to the Jews, but it's to everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. People can come to him from anywhere if he's out in the wilderness. And he's doing it in a place that symbolizes the crossing over into the promised land. Now, you decide for yourself what significance there is to that. seems to me that it's pretty interesting. The next day, verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, I want you to notice when Jesus is seen by John the Baptist, his comment is, Behold the Lamb which takes away the sin of the world. He does not, John the Baptist does not tell us that he says, Behold, the one whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff will burn with fire unquenchable. That's not John's message when he sees Jesus. He says, Behold the Lamb which takes away the sin of the world. Now let me ask you a question. The Jews, the priests and the Levites have been sent by the Jewish leaders to find out, is John the Messiah? Even though they wouldn't ask him straight out. John denied that he was. He said, I'm not. They ask him, are you the prophet? They ask him, are you Elijah? What are they looking for? These priests and Levites whose lives revolve around sacrifice and shedding blood. What are they asking for? They're asking him about kings and they're asking him about prophets. But they're not asking him about sacrifices. Why? Because all the Jews are interested in doing is increasing their own position through exacting revenge on the Romans. That's the condition of the 
the leaders of the people of God when Jesus comes to the earth. John identifies him very simply as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now think about the symbolism of the Lamb. First time we see the Lamb is when God provided a Lamb as a sacrifice for Adam and Eve. Next we see a Lamb in Genesis chapter 22, I think it is, where uh, Abraham takes Isaac up into the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham answers Isaac when he says, what are we going to do about the, what are we going to kill up here? Abraham says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. That was a lamb. Then we see that the lamb, the Passover lamb, was used to provide escape for each household of the children of Israel when the plagues were in Egypt. Next, on the Day of Atonement, we see that a lamb was used as a sacrifice for the nation of Israel. But the priests and Levites aren't interested in lambs. Folks, the lamb is the most significant animal. It's the most significant uh, type. It's the most significant example of anything in all of God's law. But they're not interested in that. They want to know who's who. You can see the condition of Israel. Behold the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man which is preferred before me. Here's the third time, for he was before me. That means in position or honor. Verse 31, now he just said in, in uh, what was it, verse 26, he said about the Pharisees, there's one among you that's going to baptize with fire that you don't know. Now he's going to say, and I didn't know him. Think about what that means. John and Jesus were natural cousins. Mary was uh, a cousin of uh, John's mother, Elizabeth. But John didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. I'm sure there were stories that were told, family stories or, or things like that between a Mary, a Mary and Elizabeth about the virgin birth and different things like that. I don't know. What did she share? Who did she share with? That would be pretty sacred information. You wouldn't want to, to tell the wrong person about that, you know. Not too many people would believe you as it is such an unusual occurrence. I'm not sure unusual occurrence really describes what I'm trying to say, but you know what I mean. So maybe he's heard something, but he's not convinced. He doesn't know that Jesus is the Christ. But notice it says, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. I want you to see John, the apostle John, the author of the gospel, tells us that John the Baptist identifies the reason that he baptized. John the Baptist is saying the whole reason that I baptize with water is so that the, that the one that's coming after me could be revealed. He'll explain further. And John bear record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. That means it rested upon him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus and anointed him. John is the only one that tells us the Holy Ghost came and stayed. And I knew him not, verse 33, here's John the Baptist still speaking about himself and, and his relationship to Jesus. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Now think about what that means. As important as John the Baptist's ministry was, as successful as John the Baptist's ministry was, there was one foundation purpose for what he was doing and why. John the Baptist baptized in water for one and only one reason, and that is because he's looking for someday he's going to baptize somebody and the Holy Ghost is going to come upon him and stay there. And that's how John is going to know that's the Son of God, that's the Messiah. Fascinating, isn't it? Why didn't God tell him? Why didn't God say, no, there's going to be a guy coming. By the way, he's your cousin. His name's Jesus. That's the way we want it to be, isn't it? We want everything tied up in a nice little ribbon and offered to us on a silver platter and say, okay, here's how it's going to work. A lot of times you do what God puts on your heart to do, and you do it again and again and again and again and again until you start to wondering, am I really doing the right thing? Am I really doing the right thing for the purpose of God's plan and will to come to pass? That's the whole reason that John baptized in water. Now think about what that means. John baptized in water. The only reason he had a ministry of baptism is so that he could identify Jesus. The greatest prophet of all the Old Testament 
had a ministry of baptizing in water for one and only one reason, that is so he could identify who Jesus was. That's why all the gospel writers give us an account of the Holy Ghost coming down upon him. We take it as for granted because we already believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why we read the Bible is because we believe and because we were already saved. Not too many unsaved people are reading the Bible. Most of us read it because we are saved. We want to find out certain information in there. So we come at it from a whole different aspect. We come at it from a position of, well, of course he's the Son of God. That's not where they came from. That's not where John the Baptist came from. Verse 35. Again, the next day. Interesting, it tells us that the day after the, that, uh, one day, the Jews questioned John about who he is and who gave him the authority to baptize. The next day, Jesus appears and uh, comes to John and John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the next day. Now, these days may represent different periods as far as the Old Testament, New Testament is concerned. There's a, there's a, a real good argument for that. But it's interesting that the Bible keeps saying John, the author of the gospel, the apostle John, keeps telling us here's what happened on one day, here's what happened on Thursday, here's what happened on Friday, here's what happened on Saturday. Again, the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now this is different for a couple of reasons. Notice the message is the same. John didn't stop and say something new about Jesus. He identifies, here's the Lamb of God. The day before, he said it was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. How did he know that? Because he saw the Holy Ghost descend upon Jesus and stay there. That's how he knew who he was. The next day, he remembers that's the guy that the Holy Ghost is on, came upon and stayed on yesterday. Now he's standing with two of his disciples. Those two disciples are going to be John, who turns out to be the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel, and Andrew. These are two of John's disciples. And as Jesus comes walking by, John stops and puts his hand perhaps on on their shoulders and says, look, that's the Lamb of God. Now, there's a couple of things we can see here. The first thing I want you to see is the character of John the Baptist. The second thing I want you to see is the, the, uh, the attitude toward God that John and Andrew already had. They're already followers of God in the greatest measure that they can be at that point in time until Jesus is revealed. But John now hears firsthand from John the Baptist, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now think about John's ministry. He's got multitudes, John the Baptist's ministry. He's got multitudes of people following. He's got the religious leaders against him, which is usually a good sign when it comes to the things of God. The second thing is he's got multitudes of people coming from every quarter, every type of person, every even the Roman soldiers are coming. The tax collectors are coming. The people, the common people are coming. Even some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to John the Baptist, according to some of the other gospel accounts. You've got people coming from every quarter. But notice, regarding the religious leaders, regarding the different types of people, regarding the multitudes themselves, it's only going to be a few people that are going to follow Jesus. you got some people that are interested in the, in the excitement. They want to be in, a part of something big. Folks, Jesus is not something big at this point. He's an unknown except for the people that were there that heard John's testimony. And they followed Jesus. It takes a quality. As a matter of fact, uh, a quality of character is what I started to say. Let me finish my thought and I'll go on further. It takes a quality of character to really be a follower or a disciple of Jesus. Not every Christian is willing to exhibit that quality of character. John is the one that tells us. He's the only gospel writer that does. He's the one that tells us in John chapter 8 how that Jesus made a distinction between believers and disciples. John chapter 8, about verse 30, something like that. And Jesus said to those that believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. you got a lot of believers that won't continue in the word. You got a lot of people that are going to heaven. They'll just make it in by the skin of their teeth, so to speak. Maybe the smell of smoke on their clothes from the way that they're living, but they're going to make it into heaven. And they're out there saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. There's a difference between being a believer and a disciple. And the word makes that distinction. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. The truth comes from a knowledge of the word. Only those 
who are going to continue in the Word are going to be disciples. I don't know about you, but I take note of the fact that Jesus' great commission is not to go into all the world and get people saved. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all men. What does that mean, make disciples of all men? That means teach people to continue in the Word. Folks, it's not just about making Jesus the Lord of your life. Now, if if that's the only thing somebody can have, obviously that's hugely important. That makes the difference for them in eternity. But as far as your life is concerned, to continue in the Word is the key. Let me, uh, let me go so far as to say this. Jesus did not come to the cross, come to the earth, suffer and die on the cross just so that people could barely be saved. Have eternity secured for them. Heaven is secure, but live their lives subject to the work of the enemy here on the earth. That's not why Jesus came. He came so that you and I would be overcomers, and that comes through the knowledge of the word, through continuing in the word. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now notice, we're going to talk about the first disciples now. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek you? Now as soon as the first two people, first two people we have record of start following Jesus, Jesus turns around and says, What are you looking for? He doesn't turn around and say, Ah, you're my first. Man, I'm so glad. It's been such a lonely walk so far. No, he asks them. He questions them as to their motive and their purpose. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Folks, there's a real fine line between making things too easy and making people make a commitment. I know there's a, there's a certain um, group of people, ministers, that are really concerned about some of the TV ministry that takes place today. Because it, it's, it's portrayed, and I, I'm not judging anybody's motive. I do some of this on some of the closings of our TV program as well. Confess Jesus as your Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess Jesus as your Lord and, and make him your Savior today. That's an easy thing to do. But it's so hard in just a few seconds that you've got somebody in a TV audience to identify is this a commitment that they're really making from their heart. It's so hard to do. And some people are criticizing, you're making salvation too easy, you're not even asking for repentance from sin. And they got a point. I understand their point. I, I'm, I'm getting some criticism about this myself with some of the, the latest closings that we've done uh, as far as giving invitations to people to get saved. But how are you supposed to identify if somebody is really committing their lives to the Lord or if they've just heard about hell and they're trying to escape? Which, by the way, is not a bad reason to get saved. But again, Jesus didn't come just so you could escape hell. Jesus came so that he could change your life. Again, we're talking about the difference in believers and and disciples. My utmost goal is to make disciples of all men. But if I can't make somebody a disciple, I want to make them at least a believer. But Jesus' first question to the first two disciples that followed him, what are you looking for? I may be, I may not be what you're after. What are you seeking? And notice their answer. Their answer is, is phenomenal. They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? He's asking, what are you looking for? And they said, where do you live? Now, this dwelling is the same word abode. It's the same word talking about the Holy Ghost came and descended on Jesus and and stayed or remained. What they're asking for is a place of fellowship with him. They're not just saying, hey, we want to see your house. You know, if you're really the son of God, you're going to have a nice house. I mean, prosperity is going to be working for you. That's not what this is about. Now, interestingly enough, you wouldn't have to ask any of the religious leaders where they live. Everybody knows where their houses are. They're nice places. But the question is, where do you live? The, the, the import of their statement is, we want to be with you. The question is, what are you looking for? The answer is, we want to be with you. So what happens? Jesus says, come and see. He doesn't answer. He says, come and see. If you really want to know, if you really want to know what it's like to be with me, come and see. 
And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That means four o'clock in the afternoon. They don't know this guy from anybody. All they know is what John the Baptist has told them about Jesus. Here's the Lamb of God that, that takes away the sin of the world. They follow Jesus. Jesus says, what are you looking for? They said, we want to know what it's like to be with you. Jesus said, come see. So they stayed with him from that point. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon. Now, this is an interesting phrase because it says Andrew found his brother first. That's what this phrase means. He first found his brother Simon Peter. That means that John later found his brother James and did the same thing. But the implication is Andrew acted first toward his brother before I, John, acted and told my brother James about it. He said, he first found his own brother Simon and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is be interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. The word Jonah is Greek for John. You're the son of John. Now, this is we don't know anything about Peter's father, but he identifies that he knows who he is already. Thou art Simon, the son of John. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Now, this is Greek. Uh, Cephas is Greek, really meaning stone instead of rock, big rock, but it's talking about stability. Now, Andrew is, we know from the gospel accounts, Andrew is a real practical guy. When the, when the loaves and the fishes are multiplied, I think it's over in John chapter six, Philip, who we're going to see in just a minute, Philip says to Jesus, where can we buy, or Jesus answers the question. He says, give these people something to eat. Philip's first thought is, where could we buy enough food for everybody? It would take two years' worth of wages. 200 penny worth, I think is what King James says. It's literally two years' worth of wages. It would take two years' worth of wages to, to buy enough food for these people. He's not saying we don't have the money. We don't know if they had the money or not. What he's saying is, there's not a bakery big enough to have enough food. The question is where, not where would we get the money. Where would we get the bread? Because it's so much bread. It's so much money's worth of bread. Andrew is the one that speaks up when Jesus said, what do you have? Andrew says, we've got little boy, one lad that's got five loaves and two fishes. Andrew seems to be the clear thinker. He seems to be the solid, stable guy. Peter is just the opposite. His brother is just the opposite. He is hot-headed. He's impulsive. He's rash. He's unstable. And the first thing that Jesus speaks to him is about stability. He said, your name is Simon. Now, the word Simon, the name Simon means hearing. You're a hearer, but we're going to make you stable by making you a doer. You know what I found? You, you know what unstable people are like. They're always back and forth. They keep saying uh, over and over and over again, in my experience with people, they say, you know, I, I don't like to be this way. I know I'm impulsive. I know I make too quick of decisions, and they get me in trouble. They, they um, disdain their instability. I wonder if that's Peter's case. I wonder if Jesus is speaking to something that's a secret of Peter's heart. Peter, we're going to make you a stable guy. The day following, here's the next day. John's all about next days. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and found Philip and said unto him, follow me. Now, folks, I want you to understand. The first thing it tells us is that, that John and Andrew were Jesus' first two disciples. Now, some people have a hard time reconciling this with some other gospel accounts. How many of you know that some of the other gospel accounts talk about Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee and seeing Peter, James, and John in the boat and say, come follow me? Well, how do you reconcile these things? This is a different account. This is a different story about following Jesus. Well, let me explain it to you this way. If you've heard me tell the story about how I got saved just before I was seven years old, you may also have heard me tell the story about when God called me to Bible school and really put me up, put it on my heart, a call to the ministry. Well, those are not conflicting stories. One tells about when I came into relationship with Jesus and the other tells about when I came into a ministry office or a ministry call. The other gospel accounts where Jesus saw them fishing by the seaside and said, follow me, that's their call to the ministry. This is where John and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel 
are going to become followers of Jesus. Now, nobody could be saved or converted during Jesus' day. The best thing that they could do is make a commitment that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and so they are committed to him and whatever he says, and we want to stay with you. That's the closest thing to a salvation or a conversion experience they could have. But that's why there's a discrepancy. John's talking about spiritual relationships. The other gospel accounts are telling about ministry call. John never says a word about being called to the ministry. Now, at this point in time, he's in his 90s, probably. He's the oldest, most famous preacher on the face of the earth. He's writing this about 95 A.D., long after the other apostles. Every one of the other apostles are dead. Everybody knows who the guy is. That's probably why he can get away with not telling, identifying himself by name. Everybody knows he's the disciple Jesus loved. He's the one that saw an eyewitness testimony. At the time that's written, there's nobody else alive on the face of the earth that saw Jesus the way that he describes. Everybody knows who's writing this. But he never says a word about being called to the ministry. Now, he's got to know that the other gospel accounts, which have already been written, identify some of that. And so people may have heard the stories. But he talks about his spiritual relationship. With Jesus. So it says, now Philip, uh, verse 43, the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and found Philip and said unto him, follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found him, found Nathanael and said unto him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said unto him, come and see. Now, what's the reason that John is telling us about this? It's showing us different ways that people became followers of Jesus. Andrew and John became followers of Jesus because of what John the Baptist said. They were disciples of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, that's the Lamb of God. So they left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. Jesus questioned them, what are you looking for? What are you seeking after? He said, we want to know what it's like to be with you. They know what it's like to be with John the Baptist. I'm not sure that locust and wild honey thing really got their attention. What is it like being with you, Jesus? Jesus said, come see. And from that point on, they pretty much stuck with it. Now, that does not mean they didn't fulfill their responsibilities to their father and the fishing business and that kind of stuff. They did. They went back and forth, but they were followers of Jesus. They were always on hand. But the time came when Jesus called them into ministry full-time, leave your fishing business, leave the other things that are going on in your life and follow me. And that's what they did. That was their call to the ministry. Here, Philip is a whole different category. It says Jesus went out to get him. He didn't have a brother to come tell him. Andrew went and told Peter. Peter came to see. You know Andrew's told him about John the Baptist. Peter may have even been to some John, John the Baptist ministry events. He may have gone out into the wilderness from time to time himself. So he takes his brother's testimony, accepts his brother's testimony, and he goes to see Jesus, and Jesus speaks to what I believe is the secret of his heart. We're going to make you a solid and stable guy. That's the impact following me is going to have on you, Philip, or Peter. The next one he tells us about is Philip. Philip is found by Jesus. He didn't have anybody to talk to. He didn't have anybody going after him. Jesus went out after him. People get saved in a variety of ways. What was his position with John the Baptist? Philip is the most materialistic of any of the of the disciples, with the exception of Judas. Philip is the one that's always asking the questions. He's the one that Jesus asks about feeding the lo- uh, multiplying the loaves and the fishes. He says, give these people something to eat. Philip is always the one saying, wait a minute, where are we going to buy enough food for all these people? Philip is the one that says in, in John chapter 14, Jesus, show us the Father and it will suffice us. He's always so in his head that he has a hard time grasping spiritual things. But he's faithful. He's loyal. He's the guy Jesus goes to find. He sees him. He says, follow me. Philip does the same thing Andrew does, except he goes to somebody that's not his brother. He goes to his friend. He goes to his friend Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah. Something about what Philip saw while he was with Jesus convinced him. He goes to Nathaniel and says, we found him. We found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Nathaniel asks a question that's... Um, that with some understanding makes a lot of sense. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, there's a prophecy. There's an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. It says, and he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, Nazarene does not mean somebody from Nazareth. 
There were a lot of people that felt the same way that Nathaniel did, that because Jesus was from Nazareth, he was disqualified because they all know that the prophecy was the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So everybody assumes if you're born in Bethlehem, you're going to grow up in Bethlehem. If Jesus grew up in Nazareth, that disqualifies him according to the Old Testament prophecies. Because Nazarenes were considered in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Samson? Samson was a Nazarene. He wasn't from Nazareth. He was a Nazarene, meaning a separated one. A razor never touched his head. That was the source of his strength, is his long hair. He lived like John the Baptist did, out in the wild, eating locusts and wild honey and stuff like that. That's exactly what was happening with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was considered a Nazarene. It's also the same thing that Hannah, you remember, uh, uh, Hannah went to the, to the temple and um, uh, she was praying, she was barren, and she was praying. And Eli, the prophet, saw her and thought she was drunk. He reprimanded her and she said, no, I'm praying because I'm barren. And he said, well, okay, whatever you're praying for, God will give it to you. Well, she had a son. The commitment she made was, you give me a son and I'll make sure that he's a Nazarene. A razor will never touch his head. He'll be separated to the things of God. So when it says the Messiah, the Old Testament prophecy is that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. That really meant he would be from Nazareth along with separated unto God. But not the razor and the hair stuff. It means separated unto God in spirit. So Nathaniel's asking a perfectly logical question. He's saying, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip, you're telling me that the Messiah is coming from Nazareth. That's impossible. How can any good thing come from Nazareth? Philip says the one thing that is the key to, to witnessing, come see for yourself. He didn't try to convince him of some kind of doctrine. He says, come see for yourself. Nathaniel came. It says in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. The word guile means open and, and uh, uh, open and honest. He says, Nathaniel, you're an honest and open person. His question about any good thing coming from Nazareth was not some slam. It was not some sarcastic cut or dig or anything like that. He's really interested in the things of God. He just doesn't understand how the how the prophecy could fit what he's been told. And Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. It's one of the greatest compliments Jesus ever gives anybody. Yet we know very little about Nathaniel. But Nathaniel asked him a question. He says, how do you know me? Where do you know me from? Jesus answered and said unto him, before thou that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. Well, I wish you could convince people that quick today. So many times people will say, well, if I just saw a miracle, then something will happen and they'll hear about one. They'll say, yeah, but that could have been coincidence. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. I love this. Now remember, John's telling the story about Jesus, the Son of God. You believe because I saw you under a fig tree? Nathaniel, that's lightweight. You'll see a lot greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Can you tell how John's telling the story? Like I said, it's almost like he's saying, let me tell you about my friend Jesus. He was the son of God, but he leaves himself out of it. I wonder where he got that from. That's exactly the way John the Baptist was. John the Baptist didn't draw any attention to himself. When he was questioned about who he was, he answered honestly, but he didn't embellish himself at all. He didn't exaggerate his importance. It amazes me how much preachers talk about themselves. And I'll tell you about me if it, if it helps to illustrate a story or something like that, but illustrate a point in the Bible. But what does it matter about me or anybody else that's preaching? We're supposed to be preaching about Jesus. That's exactly what John does. I wonder if he, want, I wonder if he learned it from John the Baptist. Because it's exactly what John the Baptist was. So instead of saying, let me tell you about my friend Jesus, he was the son of God, he just simply says, and his whole gospel is, let me tell you about Jesus, he was the son of God. You're going to love the gospel of John, I promise you. It's just starting to get good. And it'll get gooder and gooder from as we go. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that our relationship with you can be just this simple just this direct, just this intimate. 
we can come see for ourselves. We can know you for who you are. We can learn from the path of others. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did take away the sin of the world. And because of that, we can stand before heaven and earth and hell and declare ourselves to be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Make us a voice, whether it be in the wilderness or in the city, whether it be among Jews or Gentiles, whether it be among families or strangers. Make us a voice that says the same thing that the disciples said. Come see. We found him. Come see. Oh, Lord Jesus, that the world would come and see. That's why we ask you for the rain, Father, even as you instruct us to. You said ask of the rain. Ask of you for the rain in the time of the latter rain. You said, Lord, that you'd make bright clouds a display of your power and a manifestation of your presence and give us showers of rain, outpourings of the Holy Ghost, outpourings of power, outpourings of salvation, outpourings of baptism in the Holy Ghost, outpourings of revelation, outpourings of utterance. You said you'd bring forth grass in the field, Father, the precious fruit of the earth that Jesus is waiting for before he returns. Give us the rain, Lord. Not just us, but cause the rain to fall upon the whole earth. Cause the rain to fall upon every church and every group of people, every person that names the name of Jesus and speaks boldly the word of God. Thank you for the rain, Father. Thank you for accomplishing your plan, your will, and your purpose for these last days. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.